0: Thank Carlton, and uh, thank you, Russ, for uh, reading Psalm 23 from the, the King James Version. I, I just don't, it just seems to me you just have to do that from the King James uh, Version. Well, you've heard the uh, statement, something like this, he thinks he is God's gift to mankind, or maybe God's gift to women, or something like that, and it's, it's always used to describe somebody who's what? who's conceited. We're having a passage here that actually encourages us to think of ourselves as God's gifts. Not so much to the world, but actually God's gifts to Jesus. So let's continue to listen in on Jesus' prayer here now for His disciples. Now typically I like to, I like to go down a passage verse by verse. But to more clearly understand what Jesus is saying in these verses, I thought it better actually to pull out of the prayer the major points of what he is what he is saying here. And you can categorize them in three ways. There is what the Father has done. There is what Jesus has done. And there is what the disciples have done. So let's look first of all at what the Father has done. Well, what he has done, Jesus is telling us, is that he he is a giver. And he gives to Jesus his disciples. Look with me in verse 6. It's in the insert if you need to follow along with that. He says, he speaks of the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. He'll say this again down in verse 9. Those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So God the Father gives to Jesus, God the Son, his his disciples that he's praying for at that time. He also gives Jesus his words that he conveys to his disciples. Look in verse 8. For I have given them the words that you... Gave me, and indeed Jesus is going to make the point that everything that He has, God the Father has given it to Him. Note in verse seven, everything that you have given me is from you. So to put this verse into perspective, let me read a passage to you earlier in John. It's back in chapter three, in verses thirty-four and thirty-five. And here we read of this. For he whom God has sent, that is Jesus, utters the words of God. For he, the Father, gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So all that Jesus teaches, all the power that Jesus displays, all of it comes from the Father. So, the Father gives to Jesus his disciples, his words to teach. He gives everything to Jesus that he possesses. And finally, he gives Jesus himself. Again, back in verse 8, Jesus speaking of himself, I came from you, you sent me. So, Jesus is God's gift to his disciples. So, that's what the Father has done. And let's look what Jesus has done. He specifies three things. First of all, in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. And when he speaks of this, of your name, he's referring to, really, to God himself. Oftentimes, the scripture will speak of the name of God. May God's name be honored. And he's speaking here of God being honored. So, Jesus, by his presence, this is what he's saying, by the, by the life that I have led, by the words that he speaks, by the works that he does, he has, dis, he has displayed before his disciples the, the glory, the character of God. Let me explain a little bit of a difference here. Some of you, perhaps if you're using the NIV, you might have the word reveal. I think manifest is a better word in, in this sense. I can reveal God to you. I am doing that right now, taking God's word and going through it and proclaiming it and teaching it. I'm revealing God to you. But only Jesus can manifest. Only he can display God to you by who he is. As he said back to his disciples back in John 14, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is manifesting God the Father to, uh, to his disciples. Look here in verse 8 of something else that he has given. For I have given them the words that you gave me. So what Jesus has done is that he has taught his disciples faithfully. Faithfully. The words of God his Father. Back in chapter 12 of John, verses 49 to 50, he notes this. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus has faithfully manifested the Father. He has faithfully taught about the Father. There's one more act that he has done. In fact, it's an act that he is doing at this very moment. As he says in verse 9, I am praying for them. At this very moment, before the great trial to which all of his life has been aiming toward, his thoughts turn to his disciples. And we're going to see next week just what it is that he's going to pray for them. But the point here now is that Jesus faithfully lifts up his followers before the Father. Okay, so let's, let's review for a moment. God the Father is God the giver. He has given the disciples to Jesus. He has given Jesus to the disciples. He has given to Jesus the words that he is to teach to the disciples. Indeed, he has given everything to the Son. Jesus, in return, faithfully manifests the name of his Father. He displays the Father's character. He has also faithfully transmitted the words that his Father has given him to his disciples. And he has and is faithfully praying for them. All right, that leads us finally here to the disciples. Now, what is it that they have done? Well, Jesus reveals in his prayer what they have done. And all of it revolves around the word that Jesus taught. Uh, three verses speak to this, and we're going to actually take them in reverse order. Go down with me to verse 8. Speaking of his, of his disciples, they have received them, that is the words from the Father through Jesus, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, And they have believed that you sent me. So the first thing we're to note here is what they understand about Jesus. They understand that he has divine authority as one who has been sent by God the Father. You know, it was this authority. This is what it was that Jesus' critics challenged him most throughout his ministry. By what authority did he teach his his, all of his sayings. Particularly, they wanted to know by what authority did he say harsh things about, about them. By what authority did he do his works? And in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, Jesus is going to make this intriguing statement. He says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And Now he's going to give how it is That one will know whether he is, uh, where his authority comes from. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. If anyone truly desires the will of God, he'll know. And give the disciples credit. They must have truly desired to do God's will. Because they accepted Jesus' teaching uh, that he was from God and speaking from his authority. Now, verse 7 takes this thought further. He says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Now, here's the point here. We know how to distinguish between what a person teaches and what he practices. You know, we, we've learned in life that you can't expect uh, someone may be able to teach that which is very good and very moral and very inspiring, but they themselves cannot live up to that. Indeed, even, even at the scriptures, we acknowledge that the words in the scriptures are true and perfect. And yet the writers themselves, well, they were sinners. It is the Holy Spirit who was able to inspire them to write God's words. Ken. But in Jesus, Jesus wedded both the, the teaching and the practice perfectly. Because everything, everything he possessed was from the Father. And so the disciples did not pick and choose from among Jesus' teachings and works determining for themselves well I think this is from God uh, but uh, this probably isn't from God no everything from Jesus they recognized was from God the Father and so all the more reason then that they accepted whatever he had to teach them as being divine authority and so this listening this, this understanding, this, this reception of Jesus' teaching. That's what led them to what is stated about them in verse 6. When Jesus says, they have kept your word. Now, other versions, the NIV uses the term, they have, they have obeyed God's word. And that's true. That's what it, it, it involves. It's, it's obeying God's word. But that term keep carries a little bit more connotation. Well know, look one can can obey an instruction without the right motivation or care. Every parent learned this a long time ago and all teachers know this. You know whether when you know you're teaching a, a subject or whether you're teaching how to perform a task There's a difference between those who, well, they follow the instructions, they do what they're supposed to do, and yet their heart is not in it. And then there are students who, there's some of them, maybe not a lot of them, but there are students who drink in your words. They love what you're teaching. And not only because, you know, they're really interested in the subject matter, but they think you're just the best teacher they've ever known. And whatever you have to say, whatever you have to teach, they take it in. They respect you. So that what you have to say, you don't just obey, they keep it in their minds. It inspires them, it moves, it guides their actions. And so the disciples are not simply obedient followers. That's important. But they're dedicated committed followers just in a few hours, actually in just a few moments, they're going to fail in their endeavor, but they will will regroup and they will keep Jesus' word wherever it leads them and through whatever trial it will take them because that's what happens to, to persons who have had God manifested to them now, Jesus is going to make clear later in his prayer that he is praying not only for those disciples that are there with him, but, but for us, for all whom the Father will give him in the future. And so let's take time now, since, since we're included, to consider what his prayer means for us. And one thing that it means for us is that we also are to be keepers of God's word, and to be keeper is to receive God's word. It is to re- receive the Scriptures as all of it as coming from Him. All of it bears authority. All of it is to be believed. We do not do we do not do this. What is becoming a more common practice, and that is to place the Scriptures. Under the judgment of our opinion. We shape our values. We shape our morals. Our beliefs. To fit the word of God. Not vice versa. We do not dismiss its teachings because, well, it doesn't agree with our way of thinking. We don't try to make it conform to what is more accepting of it. But this has happened throughout all the ages. And it includes ours. We see it happening now. We see Christians conforming to what the world now says, for example, is the way to view sexual identity. Um, It happens among us. Every time we disobey what Scripture teaches about morality because well, we gotta come up to the modern age. We gotta things have changed now. It's too unpopular. It interferes with the way that we're living our lives. It interferes with achieving our happiness. And doesn't God, above all things, want us to be happy? That's how we often take this. In the early years as a preacher, my mentor was James Montgomery Boyce. And he would often comment on the the negative effects that he saw in, in mainline churches as they had abandoned their belief in the inerrancy of scriptures. And invariably then, they continued to let the world guide their agenda, guide, guide their morals. Okay. But he noticed as he, time went on, and he was, he was preaching this pretty much early in the early 70s, and then in the 90s, he began, he said, to observe the same thing that was happening to mainline churches who did not believe God's Word to be all of God's Word, he began to see it in the evangelical churches who, who held on to inerrancy. But they had lost confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. And where they once depended upon God's Word to guide them, well, they turned to all kinds of things. Popular science, psychology, business models, self-help books, and so on. Those were the ways... Uh, those were the things that are going now to, to guide them, even as they would say that they believed in God's word. And so the challenge is for us, do you trust the scriptures to be God's word? All of it. Do you, be this, do you trust the scriptures to be sufficient in teaching you not only how to be saved, but even now to, to, to understand who God is, how God would have you live, Do you, when you come upon a hard saying, take the time to conform your thinking, your practice to it? Or do you too easily dismiss it in order to think and live according to what is right in your own eyes? So to be a a keeper of God's word, to be a keeper of what Jesus has given us, is to hold on to these scriptures... Trust them to be all from God and to conform our lives to that Word. Secondly, to be a keeper is to to obey God's Word. Much of the time, I think indeed most of the time, when we stumble over Scripture and we say, boy, this is hard to understand. The reason is not because it's actually difficult to understand, but that it's difficult to obey. And yet obedience is the tell sign of accepting the scriptures to be God's authoritative word. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, who will enter? But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. We can spout correct theology. We can practice religious living. You know, we can, we can come to church and we can, can do all those activities. What matters is to obey the words spoken by Jesus as God the Son. Obeying these words, knowing that these are the words of God the Father, that they were placed into writing by God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is our model, isn't he, as a keeper of the Father's Word. He was obedient. He carried out the calling that was given him by the Father in heaven. He obeyed all the laws and prescriptions given in Scripture. Indeed, so well did that he did it he could defy even his enemies to find fault with Him. He summed up his whole life in this way as carrying out the will of his Father regardless. Of where it led him. And we know where it led him. To obedience on the cross. And he calls us as his disciples to do the same. And so again to be keepers of God's words. Is to receive them as from divine authority. That they are inerrant. That we believe that they are true. And then to obey as God's will for us. So, the first thing that we're learning here is what it is to be keepers of God's Word. Now, I want to turn your thoughts to what it means to be a given people. That's how Jesus describes us. And the first thing that we understand that it means is this. We have always, we have always belonged to God the Father. Isn't that a comforting thought? You know, we think in terms, when we think about salvation, that of being, we, were once, we were once outside, outside the fold of God. Jesus came, found us, He won us to Himself and to His Father. Now, that of course is all true, especially for us Gentiles. The Apostle Paul described us Gentiles before Christ came as strangers. To the covenants of promise, having, and we, having no hope, and without God in the world. Even so, before he wrote those words in Ephesians 4, he wrote in Ephesians 1, verse 4, that God chose us before the foundation of the world. You know, as I got to thinking about this, I looked at the times that, you know, Jesus gave parables about being lost. In Luke 15, he tells three parables, all of which you know. There's the, uh, the parable of the lost sheep, and there's that shepherd who goes out and finds that one sheep and leaves the other 99 to get them. There's a woman who's lost a coin, and she sweeps out the whole house until she finds that coin. And then there's the lost prodigal son who finally comes, and the father goes out and gladly brings him in. But you think about this now. What was common in every single one of these cases? They're all lost. But they were lost from their owner, or in the case of the son of father, whom they had already belonged to. So Jesus presents himself as finding and bringing back those who had already belonged to the father. He's coming to bring you back home. In John 10, you know, Jesus presents himself as the, um, the good shepherd. And it's very instructive what he, he says here. He talks about his sheep who will hear his voice. And when they hear his voice, they're going to come to him because why? They're his sheep. And how does one distinguish who is of his fold and who not? Well, he, he adds, by the way, he says, not only do I have sheep here, and he's talking to, to the Jews here in Israel. He says, I have sheep of another fold, and I'm going to have to go to them too. Well, he's talking about us, the Gentiles. And so, what he, again, what he is saying is this. I've got to go to those who are already belong to my Father. Those who already belong to me, and I've got to bring them home. I've got to bring them back here. And he speaks of us again, of us Gentiles, and whoever we are, in the sense that, that we belong to him and we've never been outside. It doesn't matter what you have done in your life. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in a church or you grew up completely outside of church, or completely rebellious. It doesn't matter. Jesus calls you. He's calling you home. And however it is that you have come to him, you have come. Because long ago, God the Father made you his. And he gave you the ears to hear. You are not an intruder into the family of God. You are not an outsider brought in. And now you may be part of of belonging to God. You belong because God, your Father, has always claimed you. Isn't that a comforting thought? And here's another thought. Think about this. Jesus, our Lord, considers us His gifts. It was comforting to Jesus to to think that those out there whom He has come The Father has given to him. It assured for him success in his atoning work. You know, he has been experiencing a lot of rejection. But he knows. God's people, my Father's people are out there. And they're going to come. You know, we just passed a Christmas season. In which, what do we celebrate? We celebrate God's gift to us, Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave us His Son. Think of what's happening here. Jesus celebrates the many gifts that His Father has given to Him. He celebrates us. We are His gifts. We are His prizes. That joy that was set before him that enabled him to endure the cross. That joy included having us. He left his home in glory to get us as his gifts. He suffered on that cross to receive us as his gifts. He died on that cross to gain us as his belongings. Listen, to think of this. You are God's gift. To his son Jesus. And before you might bemoan that you have not proven to be not, you know, so great of a gift, understand two truths. First of all, you are God the Father's gift, and He is not a cheap giver. Don't forget that however sinful you may have been, you were still made in the image of God. You may have marred that image, but the fact remains, God nevertheless made you in his image that he chose you before the foundation of the world to be his gift for his son. And then remember this, that Jesus, God the Son, takes care of his gifts. However marred you were, he has done the work to restore you. He has, he has borne your iniquities, and he has made you to be counted righteous. That's the way Isaiah explains it in, in Isaiah 53. Or as Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians 5, you have been made a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, I was responding to a friend of mine who got in trouble on, on, on Facebook because he was, he was saying, you know, he'd been at a church and they'd been, Uh, working on vision statement or, or, you know, whatever these principles are. And he came finally to describe us, believers, as sinners saved by grace. Well, it is right. We were sinners saved by grace. But now when Paul, when the scriptures speak of us, they speak of saints, not sinners. We bear with us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Remember that. Every time that you are discouraged by sin, it seems to be clinging you, it seems to be disqualifying you or separating you from God, and you, and you wonder, how many times can he forgive me? You belong to God. You belong to Jesus. You have about you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit will continue that good work he has started in you. And he's not going to do it halfway. It's going to continue on until you reach, as we talked last Sunday, until you reach glory, that you are glorified. And then you truly will be seen as the glorious gift that Jesus died for. If you wonder, if you are one of the gifts for Jesus, maybe you have never received Jesus as the gift of salvation You know, you can easily put that question to rest. Come to Jesus. You know, it's only his sheep that hear his voice. Only his sheep who are convicted of their sins and their unworthiness. Only his sheep see in him their shepherd, who alone can save them. Just come. He will receive you. And for those of you who have come to Jesus, give thanks. Thanks that you belong to him, that you have always belonged. Give thanks for the amazing grace by which God the Father chose, chose you uh, to be his before you were born. And that he has proven indeed to be a generous giver to his son. And as you do so, you will, as you understand that you are God's gift to his son, you are bound for glory you'll find yourselves becoming true keepers of the Father's and of the Son's words. We give you praise and thanksgiving, our God. That We are yours. We belong to you. There's never a time in which we were out there and and our salvation was questionable. You've had us all along. We thank you for bringing us home. Thank you for that amazing grace.